Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jeff Eckstein. I am the executive pastor here at Bethlehem Community Church, and it is my uh, pleasure to welcome you here this morning. So I want to get right into the message this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul begins Philippians 3. I don't know about you, but there hasn't been a whole lot of rejoicing lately. And yet, as I prepared for preaching this Sunday, unsure of what I was going to preach on, the Lord kept drawing me back to Philippians chapter 3. This has not been an easy message to put together. For quite some time, I have been trying to process all that is happening in our country and around the world. Day by day, things seem to be coming more and more unglued. And I have this internal conflict that has been raging, an internal conflict that, if left unchecked, can tend to paralyze me. We were on vacation some six weeks ago or so, and for a particular reason, uh, my eye had become an issue. It was necessary for us to go to the emergency department. I found myself in a strange hospital in a strange city, and when brought into the triage area, along with asking all sorts of questions, they, of course, took my blood pressure, which was exceedingly high. After some first tests, they concluded that my eye and my blood pressure were not related, and after some period of time, they discharged me with instructions to follow up with my doctor at home. I found myself fearing what such high blood pressure can lead to, and I had this internal conflict, this internal battle that was going on On one hand, I felt like my body was rebelling against me. On the other hand was the sense that it was really my fault. I had done this to myself. I had let myself go, and I was gaining weight by overeating and undermoving. For a short while, the conflict paralyzed me. I was angry with myself. I was angry with my body for not doing what I wanted it to do. Left to my own devices, I would wax and I would wane not changing and being blown by the emotions of the moment. And this is how I have found myself in these crazy and mixed-up times, being blown by my emotional response to the happenings in front of me. I find myself watching the news on TV and throwing up my hands in frustration. I yell at my car radio, upset with something that someone says that has no basis in truth. I want to fling my phone across the room when I read something that either somebody sends me or I see scrolling through the news feeds that are so blatantly false but are presented as truth. I'm conflicted by my responses to the reality of what I know and what I am seeing and what I am hearing. It's the reality of what's right in front of me and the reality of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. It is in the context of this conflict when I imagine that perhaps some of you are also having that led me to Philippians 3, where Paul will share with us the key to walking in freedom in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you and I praise you, Lord, that in the midst of all these crazy mixed-up things that are happening in our world, that you are still on your throne. 
You are not tossed to and fro. And Lord, you tell us that if we keep our eyes upon you, Lord, Lord, the raging that is around us is nothing compared to what you are able to, with just a word, speak to calm those seas and bring those winds to calm. Father, I thank you for this word that you have asked me to preach this morning. I thank you, Lord, first and foremost, that this was a word that was preached to my own heart. And Father, if this message was just meant for me, then Lord, let this be a conversation between you and I. Confessing, Lord, that I need you more than ever. Father, I ask that if there's other hearts here who need to hear this message, I ask, Lord, that ears would hear, that eyes would see. Father, we desperately need you. And Lord, I need you now. I ask that you would fill me afresh from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. Father, may the words that I share and the meditations of my heart, Father, be pleasing unto your sight. Lord, do your work in me. Do your work in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In case you haven't been paying attention, the Republican National Convention ended earlier this week. Of course, with the pandemic, it was held through a series of live and pre-recorded videos and ended, unsurprisingly, with Donald Trump and Mike Pence as the Republican candidates. The previous week, the Democratic National Convention was conducted with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as their candidates. The Democrats and the Republicans positioned themselves as far apart as they possibly could. There were all the traditional arguments, pro-life versus pro-choice, pro-gun versus pro-gun control, lower taxes versus higher taxes, liberal versus conservative, right versus left, and so on. But this year, there were new arguments to be made. Law and order versus defund the police. Capitalist versus Marxist socialist. Not to mention arguments about Green New Deal's cancel culture, whose lives matter, and um, along with calls for social, economic, and political justice. These conventions come at a time of unprecedented upheaval in our society and around the globe. Protests, looting, riots, violence in our streets and in our communities, Civic buildings being surrounded for days, weeks, and now months at a time, facing the threat of being burned to the ground each night. Areas of our city that have been declared sovereign, where police and emergency services have been prohibited from entering. And what about the church? Earlier this month, Bibles were burned in the streets of Portland, Oregon. In the city of Los Angeles, the San Gabriel Mission, a 249-year-old Catholic church, was engulfed in flames in the early hours of of a July morning. Around that same time as the L.A. blaze, a man in Florida mowed his vehicle into the Queens of Peace Catholic Church in Ocala ahead of morning mass. 24-year-old Stephen Anthony Shields then poured gasoline in in the foyer, set the building on fire, and drove off. Shields described the incident as awesome, saying he was on a mission as he smiled and he laughed, according to the arrest affidavit. In Missouri, 100-year-old Harmony Baptist Church was burned to the ground on July 5th, according to the Johnson County Fire Protection District. In Massachusetts, cops are investigating a suspected arson attack on a statue of the Virgin Mary, 
the sixth such attack on just Catholic churches in Massachusetts alone this year. And so I ask, what about the church? To our shame, the church is as divided as the rest of society. Some churches are rushing with all the fervor they can muster to show how woke they are as they align themselves with movements and organizations that are at their very core antithetical to the Word of God. They fall all over themselves to apologize for perceived offenses that anyone may have experienced just by using the very name of Jesus and His Word. While other churches wrap themselves in the American flag as they encourage the congregation to arm up with guns and stock up on ammo and food, as they declare that you will not mess with my American dream. More disturbingly, there is an overabundance of those who call themselves prophets, who for all intent and purposes have visions of Jesus waving the American flag wearing a MAGA hat. How do we get here? What do we do? It feels like our way of life is being attacked and is at risk. We turn on the news and we are scared. We look out our windows and... We're frustrated. In the city of Albany, you're more likely to be shot than contract coronavirus. Things seem completely out of control. This morning, I am going to share what the Word has to say, how we as the church, as professing Christians, should respond to the troubles around us using Philippians 3 as the backdrop. In the last several weeks, Andrew has been sharing with us through Psalm 3 and 4, that David found peace, shalom, in his relationship with God. Peaceful sleep came to David in the midst of turmoil because David was able to trust in the Lord and in his goodness. His provision and his security. One thing that is critical is that David did not experience shalom because David was in a better, better political party or because David was more conservative than Saul. David was able to rest in the Lord because he knew that God was above politics, above economics, above divisive arguments and agendas. And as we come to today's scripture, we will see that Paul shares some remarkable words for us in this letter to the Philippians. And I hope that it will challenge us in these trying times. The theme for today's message, or to borrow Andrew saying, the big idea is, True joy is found in Christ, not in our circumstances. True joy is found, that's right. True joy is found in Christ, not our circumstances. Please join me in the book of Philippians chapter 3, where we'll read in verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has been made his own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. The theme of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is simple, joy. Paul starts chapter 3 very simply, and finally, dear brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
In fact, the word joy in all its forms is used more in this book than in any other book in the Bible. And in this book of joy, no other chapter mentions joy more than chapter 3, from which today's message is coming. You could be forgiven for assuming that since Paul is talking so much about joy and encouraging the church at Philippi to join him in this joy, that Paul's circumstances at this moment are pretty good. Perhaps he has taken some time from his vacation in a nice villa besides the Mediterranean to write a letter to his friends. Perhaps he sent this letter from a port of call where his cruise ship has docked for a nice excursion to go horseback riding on the beach or shopping in quaint villages along the coast. But this isn't the case at all. Paul's in prison. He's chained to a cell. Dirty. Cold. Damp. Deplorable conditions by any standard. Criminal justice reform advocates would have a field day with Paul's case. And yet Paul wasn't complaining. Paul loved the church at Philippi, and he wanted to thank and encourage them. Paul founded the, church at Phili- at, founded the Philippian church on his second missionary journey, as recounted in Acts 16. He didn't write them in response to a crisis as he did with the Galatians and Colossians. Instead, he wrote to express his appreciation and his affection for the Philippian believers. More than any other church, the believers in Philippi offered Paul material support for his ministry. Paul's affection for these people is clear throughout this letter, and he encourages them to live out their faith in joy and in unity. While Paul is encouraging them to live out their faith in this joy and unity in chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3, when we come to verse 12, Paul shares that perhaps there is a risk of spiritual arrogance is our first point today. Again, returning to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. What is it the this that Paul is actually talking about? Well, we need to go back into chapter 3 to look at verses 10 and 11 where we read, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Let me read that again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Folks, I don't think that there is a more complete picture of what the goal of all Christians should be than this. To know Christ to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to become like Jesus. John MacArthur puts it this way, very simply, saved, spirit-led, sanctified. Paul says his goal is to know Christ, to earnestly and intimately seek him and experience him. All right, check mark one, I want that. Paul then says to know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection is clear the Holy Spirit. Paul wants to be spirit-led. Check two. I'm doing pretty good with this. And then Paul has to go and ruin it all and says something like, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
now I may be ready to check out. I don't know about you, but I'm not that much into suffering. But let me ask you a question. What was Paul talking about here? What does he mean to enter into Christ's suffering? In Luke 22, we read this in verse 44. And being in agony, he, that's Jesus, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus agonized over what was about to happen. Not just the humiliation, not just the physical abuse, or not even being put to death on a cross. But by the separation from the Father in the moment that all of the sins of all who would ever live were placed upon Him. For Him to bear the consequences of our sin in our place. And yet Jesus says earlier in that very same chapter of Luke, these amazing words out of verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. To enter into Christ's suffering is not to allow ourselves to be beaten and crucified. It's a call to humble ourselves to the will of the Father. It's to be sanctified. And by Paul telling us that he hasn't made it, he hasn't been perfected yet, that he is still growing and needs to be sanctified more and more is a call for us to avoid spiritual arrogance. More often than I would admit it, I found myself wishing that I had a roll of duct tape with me at all times. Now, you may ask why I'd want a roll of duct tape with me, and it's not because I'm finding all sorts of things that are broken that need to be fixed. I don't have to patch a side of siding on the house or see a fender that needs to be reattached to the car. I'm not all that crafty, and I can't make a wallet out of it. I want duct tape so I can wrap it around my head so my head doesn't explode when I find myself participating in conversations or watching things unfold before me that are so outrageous I can't seem to take it. In the days of the Occupy Wall Street movement, the bumper sticker that said, I am the 99% on the back of a Mercedes. Get me my duct tape. A church that has a rainbow flag out front and falls all over themselves to show how welcoming and affirming they are while denying the truth of the gospel. Get me the duct tape. Those flashing signs that have been on the side of the road that say, New York strong. What is that even supposed to mean? Get me my duct tape. My father, who after being bitten by a tick and contracting a very serious disease, upon being given a medication that sounded an awful lot like hydroxychloroquine, said that he wouldn't take it because President Trump had advocated for its use in COVID. Double wrap my head. (laughs) And then there was a sign on the front lawn of a house that read, fifth grade graduate. Oh, just get me the duct tape. Here we go again with this mamby-pamby, making sure every kid is acknowledged and his self-esteem is intact for merely making it through another year of school. But this time, Chloe was in the car. (laughs) 
And she asked me a simple question. Why are you upset by these things? Oh, time to put away my duct tape. Upon reflection and prayer, God revealed to me that I had become spiritually arrogant. I was thinking that I had already arrived, and from this position I can assess, understand, and judge all things. As things got more and more crazy in the world, my spiritual arrogance to my shame increased. Instead of seeing the way, things the way that God sees them, everything was a confirmation to the fact that I had things pegged all along. Maybe you've been in that same place. You are as convinced right now of you being right as it is them being wrong, even though we don't even know who them is. But Paul is saying here in verse 12 that he hasn't arrived. And if he hasn't arrived, neither have I. And neither have you for that matter. The key for Paul, the key for all of us is to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and humbly submit to the Father's will, even as we experience the suffering that may result, trusting and knowing that his will is better than our own. But Paul isn't quite done with us yet in these verses. In verses 13 and 14, he challenges us with a notion of citizenship. Let's read out of 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straying forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hmm. What is it that Paul is forgetting about that's behind him? Paul gives us the answer earlier in verses 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is providing here all of his qualifications as a great citizen of Israel. When Paul speaks of confidence in the flesh, he's talking about worldly matters, what the world values. And if you think that you have everything that you need, if you think that you have the reason to boast, oh, he had so much more. His qualifications as a citizen of Israel were unparalleled. He met all the qualifications and then some. No one could or would question this. Circumcised of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, it's a religious teacher. He was lock, stock, and barrel, a true citizen of Israel. But looking back upon all of his qualifications as a citizen of Israel and all the benefits that he received as a result, he weighed it all. He valued that position, his title, his rights, and his citizenship. And when he went through all of this calculation, he took a look at his balance sheet, and he summed it up with just one word. 
rubbish. Rubbish. In verse 7 and 8, we read this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So Paul considers his Israeli citizenship to be rubbish. So what is it that Paul strains for that lies ahead? What is it that he presses on towards to achieve? Returning to verses 8 and 9, Paul shares this, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is straining for his heavenly citizenship. He sees himself as a citizen of Christ, as a citizen of heaven, not because of anything he was able to accomplish, not because of his efforts, not because of his birthright, but only because of that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul here speaks of a metaphor of a runner who is in a race. To win that race, the athlete, first and foremost, needs to be on the track. He must know the direction of the course. He doesn't spend his time enjoying the scenery or looking behind to see where others are. He has one goal in mind, to finish strong. Tim, can you play that video? Hmm. Let me ask you a question. Do you strive for Christ like that runner dove for the finish line? I've oftentimes found myself bemoaning the country that we have become. The transformation that has occurred in such a short amount of time is staggering. I'll get annoyed, frustrated, angry, and dismayed. The country that we will leave to our children and grandchildren is nothing what I hoped it would be 20 years ago when Sydney was born. Hope for a future that embraces our history and shared values has been replaced by the reality that the very things that we cherish are being torn down before our very eyes. And so many of you, I imagine like me, only plant our American flag deeper and try to stand prouder And when somebody starts to tear down this country, I stand up for her, and I defend her, and I will use the Bible because I am a proud American evangelical Christian. And then I reread those words of Paul. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the question comes to my heart, whose am I? Let's be honest here. We're more readily identifying ourselves as Americans than we do as citizens of heaven. As Christians, we try our best to marry our Christianity with being American because we know that we are called to something higher and we want to hang on to the idea that American and Christian is synonymous. But I want us to think about that for a second. 
what are the American values? This is values in American culture adapted from the values of Amer that Americans live by, by L. Robert Coles. This was provided by Boston University. And I just want to read a couple of these. Personal control over the environment. This means that people can and should control nature, their own environment, and destiny. The result is an energetic, goal-oriented society. Another one, time and its importance. Time is, is valuable. Achievements of goals depends on the, production, the productive use of time. The result is an efficient and progressive society, often at the expense of interpersonal relationships. Self-help. American take, Americans take pride in their own accomplishments. The result... Americans give respect for self-achievement. Competition and free enterprise, I'll just go right to the result. Competition is emphasized over cooperation. Action and work orientation, the result is there is more emphasis on doing rather than being. And here's the final one, materialism. Material goods are seen as the just reward of hard work. The result is Americans are seen as caring more for things than people or relationships. So I want to ask you a question. Is what I just read with you consistent with biblical Christian values? Here's the truth. Paul would have made one heck of an American before he was saved. Paul rejected his earthly citizenship in favor of his eternal one. And as a citizen of heaven, Paul's goal of striving to obtain the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus reminds us that the prize is Christ. He is our exceeding great reward. To use the languages of verses 7 through 11, it is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ ever more intimately and of gaining Christ ever more fully and of being found in Christ ever more securely and of being empowered by the risen Christ ever more completely. But here's the greatest point that Paul is sharing. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're already a citizen of heaven. So church, let's stop waxing nostalgic for what was and let's press on and strive for the prize. Indeed, the full and final prize of this call is the joy of everlasting fellowship with Christ in a glorified body and a glorified earth. And so Paul commends us in verses 15 and 16 for us to finish strong. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
Philippians was likely one of the last letters that Paul wrote before Nero put air between his head and his neck. He had been in the ministry some 25 years. He had started, nurtured, and encouraged the building of many churches. He remained faithful in the face of persecution, yet he was humble enough to know that his pursuit of Christ was a lifelong pursuit. What Paul says here is maturity in Christ is not measured in how long you have been sitting in a church. It's about knowing that in this lifetime, there is no way to fully know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And that there is no way that we could completely share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And so have you held true to what you have already obtained Perhaps the answer is no for you. And returning to John MacArthur's simple approach, saved, spirit-led, sanctified, maybe the reason is you have never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me just tell you, nothing else matters. You cannot expect to experience the power, wonder, and joy of the Lord if you haven't surrendered your life to him. If that's the case today for you, today is the day of salvation. I'd be happy to talk with you. I'd be honored to pray with you. Please see me after the service. Maybe you're saved, but you're not being led by the Holy Spirit. Not because you don't have the Holy Spirit. You have as much Holy Spirit as you're going to get and as you need when you surrendered your life and became saved. But maybe you're quenching the Holy Spirit as you've been focusing your energy towards pursuits of the here and now. I want to encourage you, stop. Pray. Listen to the still small voice. In humility, admit Admit your tendency to be prideful and arrogant and ask God to soften your heart. Perhaps you have grown spiritually arrogant, thinking that you have all the answers, and if everyone would just listen to you, everything would be all right. I want you to listen to Paul's words here carefully. You haven't made it. God has so much more for you when you stop looking at the other runners and strive for the finish line. As the worship team comes up, I want to say one final thing before I close with a challenge today. I don't want you to be confused. I am not saying that we should not engage with the things that are happening around us, politically, economically, or socially. We should advocate for the things that we believe in, We should vote. We should be well-informed. Please don't take what is being presented to you at face value. Read, research, and please pray. We are called to speak truth. But what we shouldn't do is try to wrap the Bible in the flag. There's a challenge today that I believe that the Lord placed upon my heart. 
If it's just for me, I'm certainly okay with that. But I want to share it with you. And if it finds root in your heart, I pray that it grows. Often in my frustration, disappointment, and dissatisfaction with the way that things have been going around the world, I have often called out and said, Come, Lord Jesus. Well, while we should desire to be with Christ, I've been convicted that my heart's motivation is not as much for me to see Jesus as it is for him to rescue me from the circumstances. In doing so, I'm effectively saying that there isn't any more work to be done here on earth. There's no one left that needs to be saved. Really, there's no one worth saving. It's a lost cause, and I'm effectively just saying, go ahead, Lord, fry them. Oh, may God humble us and give us his eyes and his heart so that we can truly be his hands and his feet. Father God, Lord, my heart is broken for my own sin. My heart is broken, Lord, for how I have seen things through my own eyes. Lord, forgive me. Soften my heart, Lord.